last episode of Sound Up Governance was part one of my amazing conversation with Robin Cardozo, a hugely experienced senior executive and board member in Canada's not-for-profit world. And this episode is part two, so let's pick it up right where we left off. You and I have had some conversations about the phrase that sometimes gets bandied about that governance is broken, and governance is broken in the not-for-profit sector. And as you know, I have a, have a few reactions to that. If you don't mind, I'll, I'll just sort of go segue there. Sure. One is that the reason that I, I, I object to the phrase governance is broken is that, number one, I don't believe it ever was whole. So for something to be broken, it, it, one has to say that it was whole at some point. Number two, I actually happen to believe that governance in the not-for-profit sector today is a lot stronger from what I saw when I started 30 years ago. A lot of what I saw 30 years ago was well-meaning people who really wanted to do a good job, but really had no idea what a board member's role was. I think 30 years later, there's a lot more discussion about what governance means, a lot more education opportunities. And and as a result of that, I think a lot of boards in the not-for-profit sector and charitable sector and beyond have a better understanding of what their role is. Having said all that, I think I'm actually quite encouraged by the discussion that governance is broken, because what it says to me is that, uh, as I can say, this is an old guy, I guess, is that the new generation is is questioning. Hmm. The, 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 you know, we think that things are a lot better today than they were, than they were 30 years ago, and that's well and good. But what I think the new generation is saying, but it's not good enough. Right. It needs to keep getting better, which I think is great. And I think that, that this ties into the earlier question, which is about boards not knowing their role. During the early days of the pandemic, a number of us were, uh, I was asked to join a group of volunteers who were who made themselves available to do some quick in and out consulting for organizations, mm. and particularly in the arts sector that had a range of challenges as the pandemic was hitting and as, as a lot of arts organizations were having to close their doors, particularly performing arts organizations. And what I found was a whole range of boards, some of whom got involved about how could we help, what what exactly are the challenges, what are the short-term and the long-term implications, and, and, and how can we as a board help here? There were other boards who, who were saying, this is a management responsibility, the, the financial crisis, tell us what, what you're planning to do, and we'll, and we'll respond. And there were others who were saying, no, no, management, you shouldn't be thinking long-term. This is the time to focus totally on the short-term crisis. Let, we only want to talk about the short-term crisis. To me, this was a wide range of boards who didn't perhaps didn't fully understand their potential mm. and perhaps didn't fully understand what the role of the board was mm. and management in many cases not understanding what likewise what the role of board and what role of management was so i think there i, I think there's a lot of opportunity for boards to get better and for management to get better on governance by expanding, improving our understanding of each other's roles, mm. and by building trust and mutual respect. And I know that's easy to say, and some and some people may sound cliched, uh, but I do believe that education, understanding of roles, building of, of trust and respect, I think, will lead to better governance. I, I really like the way that you've talked through this, I do like to sometimes say that governance is broken, but with the caveat that I think is exactly the same as what you're saying, which is, but it's always been broken. And that doesn't mean that some catastrophe has occurred that we need to deal with. And to me, one of the biggest issues, and I'd like your reaction is, and this may seem trivial, but I don't think it is, is that 
governance or corporate governance broadly, governance in incorporated entities, regardless of their purpose or model or whatever, has always lacked a clear definition. It's always lacked certainly a shared definition. And it often gets, in my opinion, erroneously equated to compliance. And there's this temptation among managers and among board members to think, well, as long as we're, we've, we know the rules and we're following them and we're looking for peers who are doing what we think is best practice and following that, then we have good governance. And my feeling is that, that doesn't, that's not governance at all. It's, if those are the rules, governance is what happens inside the rules. And we'd rather play the game well than play the game poorly. And I, I, I like the example that you just used of different organizations reacting to a crisis in different ways. And I wonder if part of this is that if we don't have a shared understanding in our organization among the leadership of what good is when it comes to governance, we're kind of, we find ourselves in those situations just reacting, right? And so I, 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 I don't know if there's a question in here or if there's a, you know, how much of this do you think is, is not a, a purely dictionary definition problem, but a lack of a shared understanding of what we're actually trying to do? Matt, I, I agree absolutely, first of all, that uh, governance is so much more than compliance. It's so much more than going through the, the, the box-ticking exercises of completing the regulatory requirements. Boards have so much more to, uh, to offer. Management has so much more to offer. I keep coming back to my sort of areas of cliche in a way that I think it's about building mutual trust and respect and clarification of roles. But I also think that so tying those things in together, a lot of this is personal. Mm. So when when I was the CEO um, of an organization during which time, uh, during those 13 years, I had about three or four board chairs, and they were all different. I had to reestablish my relationship uh, each time to get to a point of mutual trust and respect. And sometimes that meant doing different things. It, sometimes it meant providing right. different information. It meant bringing different issues to the board because there was a different expectation. And it's not to say that anyone was right or wrong in those situations. It, it was just that in order to build that trust and respect, that in turn would lead to good governance, mm. there needed to be a clear understanding of who was doing what and, and, and clear communication. So it's mutual trust and respect, but tied into personalities and, and how the personal trust gets built at, at one level between the CEO and, and the board chair, but also between the chair and the board, between the board and management and, and, and all those things. And those things go through cycles. At this point, Robin and I had a bit of a side conversation about how opinions have changed over time about what board sizes are appropriate or acceptable. It occurred to us both that this is deeply related to the work that we do on equity, diversity, and inclusion. Sometimes the rationale for having a large board is, well, let's make sure that we've got room for our donors to be represented or room for our communities to be represented and so on and so on. How important, in your opinion, is this representation piece, especially when it comes to having a voting 
position in the boardroom. How important is representation to good governance, whether it's on the axis of donors or communities or diversity or whatever axis you think is relevant here? Yes, uh, representation definitely is important within reason. So to me, I, I would not say that a hugely diverse city like Toronto, uh, I would not make a claim that an organization needs to have 30 or 40 or 50 people on the board simply to be representative of that diversity. However, I, th I would also argue that at the other end of the scale, uh, a board of eight might make it very difficult to have very much diversity. One needs to look at this on an organization by organization basis and who are the key stakeholders and which are the voices that one wants to hear at the board. One needs to have a reasonable degree in the context of the stakeholders of the organization, a reasonable degree of, of diversity. And I'm not sure that it all has to be voting either. Let's say for the sake of argument, you have a board of 20 in a, in a highly diverse community. Well, I think that board can make it their business to learn about the broader input, the broader stakeholder groups, without necessarily having to have every single group represented at the table. Okay, so maybe we're zeroing in on something that I really want to talk about, which is the fact that equity, diversity, and inclusion seems to be somehow particularly hard in boardrooms. And I'm not saying things haven't changed. Things have changed dramatically, not just the, the sophistication of the vocabulary and conversations that happens at the leadership level of organizations, which has improved dramatically in the 20 years that I've been in this space. But also, I think the openness to a, a wide spectrum of approaches and solutions and so on. But why is this equity, diversity, and inclusion thing so hard in boardrooms? That's a very good observation, Matt. And and, and yes, it, it does often seem to be hard. And I'll, we'll just break it down into two or three components. Uh, first of all, recruiting. There has always been a feeling in many organizations that it's, it is difficult to recruit from diverse communities or to get diverse representation. And I think as, as you and I both know from our work and from all the people we've spoken to, it doesn't have to be that difficult. It just, it just, it ends up being a bit different. As our mutual colleague, Nick Chambers has, has, has said in the past, the candidates are out there that they're just not necessarily in the usual places. For from a recruitment point of view, people might sometimes take the easy way out, and it's not that difficult to find qualified candidates from any stakeholder group. Secondly, I, I think what, where it often does fall down, and this comes back to some of the research that you and I did, it, it, where I think it does fall down is, is in the whole area of inclusion. Mm -hmm. that, that once a board has diversified, human nature often allows one to continue to operate in the same way that, that, that one always has. So the board meetings have, for years and years, as far back as anyone can remember, in an organization have been run in a certain way. The CEO provides an update. Each of the committee chairs provide an update. And uh, there's sort of any questions kind of thing at the end of each report, and everyone goes home. But I think with with a more diverse board, that old style of meeting doesn't work, and and, and uh, some different thought needs to be given to how we include people with different perspectives, and that involves doing some uh, additional work before before meetings. It involves having one on one discussions. It involves in a big way how one onboards new board members. All the things we're talking about 
tie into good governance, whether it's recruit, recruiting with, with more thoughtfulness, whether it's setting agendas to achieve greater inclusion at, at the table, whether it's asking questions in a different way so that people feel an opportunity to, uh, to engage. They're all, they all tie back to principles of good governance that uh, will in turn lead to better inclusion and, and, and better achievement of, of EDI um, goals. Listeners of my One Minute Governance podcast are familiar with my current definition of good governance as the act of intentionally creating effective conditions for decision-making in an incorporated entity. Back in episode 113 of OMG, I asked the question, is equity, diversity, and inclusion the same as good governance? And I wanted to know Robin's take. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So I, I'm not sure I would word it in exactly that way, that I wouldn't sure I would say that it is the same thing as, as good governance. But perhaps I would say that good equity and diversity practices are no different from, from good governance practices. So maybe I'm mm. quibbling with words. But everything that one needs to do to achieve good equity or effective equity, diversity, and inclusion practice at the board, every single thing is directly related to good governance. And it's not like it stands it's off on its side as an EDI piece. It goes to the core um, of good governance, and it affects every member of the board. It affects everything at the organization, not just the EDI column. That was, for the longest time, EDI was uh, siloed. Uh, there was like one person who was responsible and the separate report at the board, perhaps at the best, uh, and, and so on. Whereas, in fact, it, it really needs to be seen as cutting across every single thing that, that the board does, that, that, that management does, and it becomes a component of everything we think about. So there's another thing that you mentioned that that I, I've been thinking about in a specific way that I'll run by you too, because I'm curious about your reaction. So you mentioned that that sort of status quo conventional way of approaching a board meeting is not well aligned with the idea of especially inclusion right if we have if we've i kind of see and i think you do too in some ways diversity is like the box ticking part if you've got a diverse group of people that doesn't on its own necessarily do anything the act of inclusion matters deliberate intentional inclusion and just doing things the way we've always done them is clearly not being inclusive and I wondered, as I, and I continue to wonder, if maybe there's no such thing as a set of conditions that is inclusive, or that can be inclusive of everybody simultaneously. And that maybe we have to be deliberately changing the conditions in the boardroom so that everybody has an opportunity to be included at different times rather than hoping that we're either compromising enough that everybody's 50% there or hoping that we can find that bullseye where everybody's 100% there. What do you think? Absolutely. From any but on any issue or, or any perspective, when you have a diverse board, ideally people are going to be coming at discussions people have different skill sets they have different li mm. lived experience have different expectations I, I don't think you can try to involve everyone or indeed keep everyone happy on any one discussion or, or any one subject but but the goal of the chair and the CEO uh, really is to make sure that over time you you 
you do engage uh, everyone. And some boards that I've been on, there are some there are some board members, for example, who who, who may not engage a lot, at, a great deal at the boardroom table, and but they have the capacity and they do uh, engage hugely um, outside the boardroom. Mm. It might be at the committee or it might be in terms of their unique uh, advice to management on uh, on a technical issue that in turn informs their role as a board member. So I, th- I think every board member has something different to contribute, right. and that should be encouraged in a diverse board. Yeah, and I, you know, it's just picking up on something you just said. Sometimes I hear frequently, maybe more frequently than I'd like to admit, I hear board chairs and CEOs say something along the lines of, oh yeah, we get a new director and they don't really say anything usually for the first year or so. And I'm thinking a year? You, like, why waste everybody's time? Why don't you do the work to get them involved in a meaningful way from day one, whatever that work might be? Uh, what, what do you think about this idea that, well, maybe we need to ramp up slowly and hope that somebody gets to a point where they're contributing after a year or however long? In fact, I've heard versions that are even a bit more extreme than that, <laughs> where uh, a chair has said to a board member, we don't really expect to hear from you yeah. uh, in the first year. And the board member, I don't even know what the board... What, what we the hope new, we don't hear that, from you in the first yeah, year. <laughs> exactly. I think, I think that the, that is a, a huge, particularly in the not-for-profit sector, where people are volunteering their time and and, and could be doing many many other things. I, I think to, to to say we don't expect to hear from you or, you or don't worry, you don't have to participate. I think is insulting to right. the individual and a huge waste of resources. Now, having said that, there are some people who who for cultural reasons or, or, or their own requirements to learn may not wish to contribute at the boardroom table in their first few meetings. But I think it's up to this, the chair and the CEO to find opportunities for them to contribute mm. um, in other ways. I've been on boards where the longer-term board members very comfortably have slipped into the role of feeling that they are the ones who talk at board meetings yeah. because they've been around the longest. They can say, oh, yes, five years ago, we did such and such or, or what have you. And that's an, it's an important piece of a discussion of what happened five years ago, but that should not be allowed to dominate the board discussion. Right. And I think this maybe goes back to the, I'm not going to get the exact words you used, perfect, but this convention that, okay, well, we're going to have a very specific agenda. Every agenda piece is going to have a pre-read. We're going to come into the boardroom and we're going to do a presentation. At the end of the presentation, we're going to ask, does anybody have any questions? That's going to be your trigger or your prompt to engage in the conversation. If you don't have anything to say, we're moving on to the next thing. And then eventually the meeting is over. That This is, I think, that's the type of convention that makes me say, you know, I think governance is a bit broken here because we're failing to be curious about a different set of conditions we might be able to create that would accomplish what you've just described, which is uh, an environment where instead of those same old people talking about the past, saying, yeah, we've seen this before, isn't that interesting that I remember that? Uh, Instead, we are engaging them and everybody else in a generative conversation about what's possible instead of what has happened. So am I, is that fair? Am I being uh, extreme here? No, I, th- I think that's fair. And, and having said that, while you were speaking there, I just triggered uh, another thought in my mind, which is that boards 
also need to be a bit careful about continually generating new ideas right. that management have to follow up on. I, I've certainly been in the situation in management where we come out of a board meeting with uh, half a dozen great ideas or more, where board members expect us to come back to say, okay, here's the feasibility study. We looked at, oh, here's the report you asked for. That, uh, that st- I, I, I've, been, I've been in situations where staff have spent hours and hours on a particular report that comes back to the next meeting, and the, the board deals with it in about 30 seconds right. because their interests have moved on. I think board members have the right to express their ideas and have a right to share them. But there needs to be expectation management, essentially on the part of the, of the chair and the CEO, to make sure that every idea isn't necessarily going to get a response the next week or the next board meeting, that some of them are simply going to be taken under advisement or may come back when we're doing next year's business plan or when we're doing next year's budget or what have you. So getting that balance right is not easy because when you have engaging enthusiastic board members they're going to be bubbling with ideas but the i think it's the it's the role and the difficult role of the chair and the ceo to know when to manage those expectations thanks for listening to the conclusion of my conversation with robin cardozo thanks to robin for being an amazing friend and amazing ally in this whole governance thing and thanks to you for listening as usual if you have any thoughts you'd like to share or reactions to this episode or any other episode or suggestions for topics or guests we might cover in the future send an email or voice memo to soundup at groundupgovernance.com thanks again for tuning in see you next time